So if you'll turn with me, we're going to take a little break from our normally scheduled programming. As you know, I'm in the middle of an expositional journey through the book of Genesis, and literally, I'm right smack dab in the middle. But this past Wednesday, um, I went over Romans 1 with our youth group. Um, we are reading through the Bible. That's what we're doing. We're reading a chapter a day. We just read through Matthew, and Wednesday we started the book of Romans. And so I went over some stuff with them, uh, and, and there were some things I didn't get into, frankly, because there are some in that group I think are a bit too young and shouldn't probably be in that group. I'm actually going to be more explicit in here, which is something ironic, I suppose. But anyway, we're going to do a bit of expository work in Romans chapter 1 today. I realized as I was teaching that class that I have referenced this section and yet never really gone through it. And so that's what we're going to do today, at least in part. So as you turn there, Romans chapter 1, and we're actually going to pick up the second half of that first chapter. We're probably going to start somewhere around verse 16. So as you, as you turn there, let me regale you with a bit of history and kind of a cursory introduction to this incredible book. It was the summer of 386 A.D., and a young man sat weeping in the backyard of a friend of his. He knew his life of sin and rebellion against God had left him empty and feeling dead. He knew it was a disappointment to his parents, specifically his mother. He was a runaround. He was cavorting about with all kinds of ladies at night. And yet he just couldn't find the strength to make a final, real, resolute decision to follow Jesus Christ. He sat weeping, and as he sat in the courtyard, the backyard of a friend, he heard children playing next door. And they were singing a little tune. Talalegi, talalegi, take up and read, take up and read. Thinking that God might be speaking a message to him through the mouth of a child, he picked up a scroll laying nearby that actually belonged to his friend. And he began to read it. That scroll just so happened to contain a copy of Paul's letters to the Romans. And his eyes fell on this passage. Not in reveling and drunkenness, drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. He didn't read any further. That was Romans 13, 13 through 14. Didn't read any further. He didn't have to. The Lord had moved upon his heart. He knew that it had. And he was transformed by the power of God's word that day. Later we would know him as Augustine or Augustine. Kind of a big deal. In August 1513, a monk was lecturing on the book of Psalms to his seminary students. But his inner life was nothing but turmoil. In his studies, he had come across Psalm 31.1, which says, In thy righteousness deliver me. This passage confused that monk. How could God's righteousness do anything but condemn him to hell? God's righteousness was a condemnation because he himself was not righteous and he knew it. So this monk kept thinking about Romans that he had studied so much earlier. He knew Romans 1.17 said the righteousness of God is revealed through faith. As it's written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. That monk went on to say, night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he may justify us sinners by faith. And therefore I felt myself to be reborn. 
I felt that I had gone through open doors into paradise. This passage of Paul became a gateway into heaven for my soul. This man was born again, and the Reformation began in his heart. His name was Martin Luther. In May of 1738, there was a failed minister and missionary who reluctantly went to a small Bible study where someone was reading from Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. The failed missionary said later, while he was describing the change that God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ finally and in Christ alone for my own salvation apart from my own works. And an assurance was given to me that God had taken my sins away, even mine. This man's name was John Wesley. He was saved that night in London. Here's what some of the great men through history have said about the book of Romans. Martin Luther said it's the chief part of the New Testament. It is the perfect gospel, the absolute epitome of the gospel of God. Luther's successor, Philip Melanchthon, who takes me a takes me a bit, called Romans the compendium of Christian doctrine. John Calvin said, when anyone understands this epistle, he's, he has a passage open to him to the understanding of all of Scripture. Samuel Coleridge, who was an English poet, literary critic, said that Paul's letter to the Romans was the most p- profound work in existence in any language. Frederick Godet, 19th century Swiss theologian, called Romans the cathedral of the Christian faith. Campbell Morgan said Romans was the most pessimistic page of literature that your eyes could ever rest upon. And at the same time, the most optimistic poem your ears could ever hear. Richard Linsky wrote the book of Romans is beyond question the most dynamic of all New Testament letters, even as it was written at the climax of Paul's apostolic career. It is almost universally agreed, obviously, that Paul wrote Romans from the city of Corinth. He wrote it as he was overwintering there. He was on his third missionary journey that's described in Acts 20, 2 through 3, if you want to read it, which is also based on, uh, that's also based on Romans 16, 1 and 16, 23, along with 1 Corinthians 1, 14. That puts the date of this somewhere between 53 and 58 AD. His third missionary journey, he's in, he's in Corinth, he's overwintering there. Why would he write the book of Romans as he's waiting around in Corinth? Well, his third missionary journey, where was he trying to head to? He's heading to Jerusalem. And on his way to Jerusalem, time and time again, God is speaking to him through prophets and different people and saying, hey, bad things await for you. On his way to Jerusalem, he had three months in Corinth without any pressing duties. Maybe he thought it was a good time to write ahead to the Christians in Rome because he thought he might not make it. And if you see what was being told to him on the way, remember, there was prophets that literally talked to him on the way and said, hey, you're going to be bound. You're going to be you're going to find your end in Jerusalem. And he says, I'm ready to die for the gospel. And as he's sitting in Corinth thinking about this, he thinks, wait, there's that city. There's that the largest, most metropolitan city in all the world, certainly in all the Roman Empire. And all of these people, and I've never given them the gospel. What can I write to them in case I die before I see them? And on the basis and back of that, he writes the book of Romans, which is a masterpiece of theology. If the only seminary you ever had was the book of Romans, you'd get a better seminary education than most people. I can tell you that. I went to seminary. I can tell you that. 
He plans to visit them after his trip to Jerusalem, but he's not sure if he's actually going to make it. So he writes the book of Romans. He endeavors to go to Rome, but the Holy Spirit warns him about the perils waiting. Because of all of this, Romans is different than many other church letters. Other New Testament letters a lot of times focus more on the church in that area, the challenges, the problems that they're having. Whereas the book of Romans, the letter is more like on God, his great plan of redemption. You might say it's the theology book of the New Testament. It's the seminary in the pages. We know the letter to the Romans was prized by the Christians in Rome later. Clement of Rome's letter in 96 AD shows he has incredible familiarity with Paul's letter. Most likely he had memorized the entire book. It's also very likely that reading or reciting at least part of it became virtually a part of every meeting of the Roman church. Many scholars are convinced that an edited version of Romans, without all the personal references in Romans 16, was distributed widely among early churches. Not just the churches in Rome, by the way. Widely among all the early churches as a sort of summary of Christian doctrine. It became the early seminary, if you will. Our study today is going to center on the first chapter of Romans and specifically the last 17 verses, roughly from verse 16 to the end of the chapter in 32. So if you want to turn to 16, we will pray and we will dive right in. Let's pray. Lord, make us people of your word. Let my words today exalt your word and your truth. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. As Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, Lord, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Psalm 119, 160 tells us that the entirety of your word is truth. Let me give the entirety of your counsel to your people today. Let me be faithful to proclaim that truth to your people. Let all that's said and done here bring glory to your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Romans 1.16. You there yet? That's where we're going to begin. Here's what Paul says. Let's do this. Let's just read through and then I'll come back and we'll go through it again. All right. So here's what he says. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and his Godhead, so that they are without excuse. No one will stand before God on that great day and have an excuse. No one. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. But they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became Fools, And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, by the way, if your Bible translates it as a lie, that is a poor translation. 
That is the definitive article in Greek. They have exchanged the truth of God for the lie. They have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. Exchanging the truth of God. Willfully ignoring and forgetting that God exists is the lie. For this reason, verse 26, God gave them up to vile passions. And that's what these are. They're not socially acceptable to you. They're vile. Vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what's against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men, committing what's shameful. And receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Notice that it's shameful. It's not to be celebrated. It's shameful. And I won't apologize for using that language. And even though they did not want to retain God in their knowledge, it's not that they didn't know God. They don't want to know God. God, therefore, gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And they were filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. They're evil minded. They're whisperers. Other other translations make it gossips. That's what it means. They're backbiters, haters of God. Violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things. Notice this next one. Disobedient to parents. Interesting, that makes the list right after haters of God. You walk the halls of my school, you'd think it wasn't a big deal. It's a big deal to God. 31, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, That those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only do they do these things, but they also approve of others who practice them as well. Knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are what? Deserving of death. That's the righteous decree of God. Oh, it's nervous energy in here right now, isn't it? You know why? Because I'm reading a piece of Scripture that we want to forget is there. I'm reading a piece of Scripture that's very, very uncomfortable in the culture that we live in. And the reason it's uncomfortable in in the culture we live in is because this is the culture we live in. God has given it over. Three times in this passage, God basically says, these people have decided to harden their hearts against me. I will give them over. And what's he giving them over to? Their own sin. You want to do that so badly? Go for it. I'll give you over to it and you can eat the fruit of your choice. That is judgment. And we're going to talk about that today. I know that's really hard. I'm sorry this is coming out like Paul Washer rather than Paul Wilson, but... It's true. It's true. It's uncomfortable, but it's true. 
And it's really easy for us to be in this culture, this culture that's so given over and under the judgment of God. That's the culture you live in. This is not a normal culture. This is not even a normal culture for America. This is an abnormal culture. The reason it's an abnormal culture is it's been given over to sin. And it's easy to become desensitized and think, well, I, maybe I should just go along. You don't go along. You don't go along with a stream of toxic sludge. Get out. You're salt. You're light. You're not dead. This culture has been given over. Let's go back and start at the beginning. Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why am I not ashamed of the gospel? It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I'm not ashamed of that, Paul is saying. It may not sound like a big deal. We, we kind of make it like not a big deal. Yeah, big deal. You're not ashamed of the gospel, obviously. None of us are ashamed of the gospel. Baloney. It may not sound like a big deal for Paul to be unashamed of the gospel, but really he's making quite a statement here. In that day, Rome was considered the most sophisticated metropolitan city in the world. And we're talking about the city that invented codexes. By the way, first century, about this time, which later we would call these weird things called books. That was invented in Rome, first century. They're invented there. Apartments were invented there when Roman architects needed more housing for the burgeoning population, but they didn't want to expand the outer limits of the city. They figured out how to put house on top of house on top of house and make apartments. First newspaper in the world was invented in Rome. 59 B.C. on the orders of Julius Caesar, the Acta Diurna, or the Daily Acts, were inscribed into large slabs of stone and set up in the public square so that anyone who could read could keep up on the current affairs of the day. By the way, not a lot of people in Rome could read, obviously. The largest portion of people in Rome were slaves and servants. They couldn't read. Most of them couldn't. But anybody that could read could keep up with the daily affairs. That, that would happen every day. They would carve these, inscribe what was going on on these stone tablets. They'd set them up. They'd take yesterday's down and they'd file them away. That's actually become a trove for historians. We know some of the things that were happening in Rome simply because they actually would take these down and then store them away. And we found a bunch of them. You could keep up on what was going on, the current affairs, upcoming festivals, the outcome of legal trials, etc., Rome was where all the Roman roads led to. And conversely, that also means Rome was where all the Roman roads led away from as well. And because of that, they invented the first ever postal service known as the Cursus Publicis or Public Way. Riders and soldiers worked in relay teams, much like the Pony Express did in early America. Urgent messages from the emperor could travel more than 150 miles in one day on this thing. That's incredible considering the time. Romans invented glass blowing in the first century. And building on that, Roman craftsmen invented cameos. Small engraved or layered glass design that was intricate and beautiful. It quickly became popular among Rome's elites. It's popular in people's homes today. My mom has one in her house today. Where was that invented? Rome. Here's one that many of you will thank the Lord for. The Romans invented uh, what we today know as bacon. I know a lot of you just smiled on the inside. It's early morning. You're like, hey, I'm about to celebrate that after this place. 
The Chinese first figured out how to salt cure pork, but it was Rome who, after encountering new methods of meat curing during their various military campaigns, figured out that if they salted, cured, and smoked long strips of pork, they could prevent the meat from spoiling, even in the warm Mediterranean climate. It even made for a tasty meal or treat when cooked months later. That was Romans. Rome had an extensive aqueduct system which allowed for clean drinking water and a number of lavish bathhouses in the city. The elite of Rome even benefited from the aqueducts by having water diverted from the main channels. It flowed through pipes that were actually built into the walls and floors of their home and then back to the aqueduct. It would actually air condition their home. It was the first ever air conditioning. World's earliest form. Why do I mention all of that? Because it serves to illustrate just how hip and chic this place was. It was like New York, L.A., and Chicago all rolled into one. This was the happening place. And the gospel flew in the face of that. Plenty of people were ashamed of the gospel. And plenty of people in our culture today who claim to be Christians are ashamed of the gospel. Many of the elite and intelligentsia of that day lived in Rome. That's why they went to Rome. For that very purpose. And in that environment, some lesser men might have been embarrassed by a gospel that centered around a crucified Jewish sage. And which was most embraced by the lowest and most uneducated people in all of Rome. That was the byword of Christianity for the first few centuries. Oh, that's the slave's religion. That's the dumb people's religion. That's the religion for people that can't read. And along comes this man who is the scholar's scholar. Along comes this man who represented the best that Jewish and Roman education had to offer. And instead of being ashamed and trying to fit in with the elite, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How did we get to where we are today? Well, I'm sure it's a war on many fronts. But I'd say a large part of it is a whole lot of people who say that they're Christians who act like they're ashamed of the gospel. Oh, do you believe? Oh, I believe it. Really? You talk about it at work? Well, I mean, you know, that would cause a lot of tension. I might get passed up for that cool new, you know, post at the school or the university. And do that. What would you call that then? Well, I don't want to talk about it too much. I mean, you know, people get upset. You know, they, it causes a lot of tension when you bring it up. Mm-hmm, it does. It's, you're right. It does. There's no doubt about it. You know who is ashamed of the gospel in our culture? Those who pander for the love, the acknowledgement, the accolades, the approval of men. And when we allow our hearts to go there, we will start doing the same thing. Those who yearn for the adoration of sinful, depraved, wicked, truth-suppressing man. That's who becomes ashamed of the gospel. If you want to fit in with the elite, rub shoulders with the movers and shakers, hobnob with the snobs, if you will. Well, I can't mention Christ or the gospel or my cool new friends might shun me. Might not get that cool new job if I offend him with all this talk about Jesus. And yet with all this talk about Jesus, you're watching them careen toward an eternity under the unrelenting wrath of God. 
Are you too worried about climbing the social ladder to be worried about the eternal fate of their soul? If so, you have allowed yourself to become ashamed of the gospel. Let's read on. 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What do they do? No, they're seeking for the truth, man. They're really seeking. No, they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his character. Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Therefore, they are without excuse. No natural man seeks after God. It doesn't happen. The natural man suppresses the truth of God. It is an act of the Holy Spirit when you see someone asking actual, real, true questions about Christ. You ought to jump on that like a starving man on a Christmas ham to tear a line out of one of my favorite movies. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's working in his heart at some, some level. A natural man does not seek truth. He suppresses truth. John MacArthur has this to say about God's wrath in this passage. Quote, this is the wrath of God's abandonment. The wrath described here is the wrath that's executed when, according to verses 24, 26, and 28, God gives people over. In other words, it's when God abandons a person, a society, or even a nation. It's when God abandons a society that gives them over to the consequences of their behavior which ends up being escalating iniquity and disaster, leading to more judgment. This wrath of God is released from heaven and revealed from heaven, verse 18 says, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. He goes on to say they actually have the truth. The truth is visible from creation. You can know that God exists and even something about God and his nature just from creation. It's John MacArthur. I agree with his assessment. The unbeliever or the atheist can't find God in all of creation for the same reason the thief can't find a cop. He's trying desperately not to. Because he knows he's there somewhere. He can't find God because he's actively suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. We live in a culture that makes suppression of God's truth something a national pastime. Is there somebody sharing God's truth or exposing the lies of the culture? Cancel them. Censor them. Fact check them. Teach these little plebs that the only speech that's going to be allowed here is the speech that these professional truth suppressors let through. If it's the truth suppressors who are allowed to censor speech, how much truth will they allow? I want you to think about that. Further, the atheist will often say, well, I don't believe in God because I just don't see enough evidence. That's nonsense. And I can tell you something of it because I've been there. Instead of us replying the correct way, the scriptural way, what we'll often do is we'll be pulled into this little game that's really a fool's errand. We will give this fool, what God calls a moron, exactly what he wants. I know some of you object to me using that language, so let me be clear. Those are God's words for the unbelieving heart. 
foolish, moros, which is the Greek word that we translate into moron. That's the unbelieving heart. The fool is ignorant on purpose. I don't know anything about God. No, you don't want to know anything about God. And therefore, you screen out anything that would scream to you about God. And you think you're wise because of it. But actually, you're ignorant on purpose. And that's foolish, and that's moronic, and that's the words that God uses to describe it. But the unbeliever often wants you to play this little charade of a game where you will parade evidence after evidence after evidence past him. Trying to persuade him that God is real. That's a fool's errand. It's designed so you can't win. I ran that path for 10 years. I can't tell you how many thousands and thousands of hours I have spent reading apologetics books, learning apologetics arguments. I got a master's degree in it. I, I spent thousands of dollars on DVDs. I have more than 120 DVDs that are just apologetic lectures from different places. You know, I have an entire library of apologetics. And for about 10 years, that's what I thought. I thought, I'll go to these places because I was getting invited to go to different churches and schools and stuff. Go talk to these people, youth groups. I'll just give them all this, all this information. And these people that are atheists, they'll, they'll be overcome and they'll just come streaming down. And it never happened. Why? Because that's not the power of God to salvation. The gospel is. That is a fool's error. When you do that, what you're actually doing is putting God on trial and making the unbeliever the judge and jury, which is backward. God's not on trial. The unbeliever is. The unbeliever doesn't really believe there's no God. And we should be pointing that out. I just don't believe in God. Yes, you do. God doesn't believe in atheists. You're not an atheist. Yes, I am. No, you're not. You show it by the way you act. Obviously, you're not. You think there are such things as moral absolutes. You think it's wrong if somebody steals from you. I, I had that conversation one time. I probably shouldn't tell this. But this is true. Tell this story. I took my wife out for my poor wife. I had to go all the way to Oklahoma to find a girl that could put up with me. Somehow she's put up with me this many years. It's incredible. Trust me. When we get to heaven, there'll be like a purple heart or something for her. You know, they're like the angels, right, are asking, like, we don't even know how you did it. <laughs> we got you teaching a class over here at 10 o'clock, right? Anyway, so I took my wife out for <laughs> anniversary dinner. And as we're sitting in this booth, I can hear behind us some girls talking to a friend of theirs. It's obvious there's a Christian and atheist having this discussion. And this atheist is just, she's not buying it. And I'm, I'm looking at my wife, you know, oh, I got to go talk to him. Can I go over there? Finally, she's like, you know, she just cuts me loose. All right, go ahead. I can see you want to. Go on. Okay. <laughs> I go over there. I'm like, listen, I'll buy you dinner if you'll let me talk with you for five minutes. Okay, so I slide in the booth. And here's this unbeliever. And I said, hey, I'm just thinking, what would be wrong if I wait for you outside and, and me and my pals, we uh, hold you down and rape you? That's shocking, isn't it? Why would you say that? Because she needs to be shocked with the absurdity of her own worldview. You shouldn't do that. Why not? Why shouldn't I do that? And she's like, you know, tiny little girl. And I'm obviously not a tiny guy. Why not? We're all just, you know, evolved protoplasm. I've evolved to be bigger and stronger than you. Why shouldn't I force my genes into the gene pool? Isn't that who wins, according to Darwin? It's a, like you can see her eyes. Who is this crazy man we've left in here? 
looking around the place. There's no police in here, baby. Why is that wrong? Well, it wouldn't be right. Oh, all of a sudden, you believe in moral absolutes, do you? How strange. You know why you believe in moral absolutes? Because God's written them on your heart. You know it's wrong. You just don't want to admit it. You don't like the idea of there being a God because that would force you to change your lifestyle. You would have to uh, let go of the sin you love to embrace the God that you know about. But the truth is, you know about God. There are basically two reasons. There was a man that wrote a book called The Making of an Atheist. Great book. Where he decides to go and interview a thousand different people who claim to be atheists and say, why do you not believe in God? And roughly 80%, it boiled down to 80%, 8 out of 10 of them, said, basically, if I believe in God, it's going to force me to change my lifestyle. I like that. Yeah, that's honest. And almost the rest of it, the other 20%, was because they were bitter. Well, this thing happened when I was younger. I really hated it. God didn't do it the way I would have done it if I was God, and therefore, I'm bitter toward him. Okay, well, both of those are, are at least honest answers. But you're still admitting God's there. I know he's there, but I don't like it. I resent the fact that he's there. That's what this chapter, this passage of Scripture is saying. That's what atheism is. It is not, oh, I've got this friend, and he's really a good person inside. He just doesn't have enough evidence for Jesus. That's nonsense. That kind of atheist has never existed in the history of man. I've been an unbeliever. I would have loved if all you did was just bring me evidence. Because it doesn't get down to the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. My heart was hardened against God. I don't want God to be real. When I was an unbeliever, I did not want God to be real because my lifestyle would have to change. I can't go out just drinking and fighting and carousing. And, you know, living the life, it's going to force me to change. It's going to force me to repent. And I don't want to. I love me. And that is the matter of the heart of the unbeliever. Don't put God on trial. The unbeliever's on trial. It's not that the unregenerate don't know God. They do. We actually even say it a poor way. I hate that we've, we've done this for so long now. It's like, it's just ubiquitous in our culture everybody it's the common parlance of the day in christianity right we'll say well they just don't have a relationship with god son you just need a relationship with god that's nonsense they do have a relationship with god okay in fact when this chapter says they know god it's actually nonsense ton theon that's the greek for knowing the god they don't just know about there's some god out there i'm not really sure who it no they know who it is and they're rebelling against that actively They know they just resent it. They don't know him in a saving way. I'll grant you that, obviously. But they do know him. Right? It's, it's, you, go to the, you, go to the, you go to the pool and you play that game with a volleyball, right? You like pass the volleyball. I was asking my wife about this the other day. People in Ada, I guess, don't play this game. We played this all the time when I was a kid. I thought it was a great illustration. And I'm asking her about it. She's like, yeah, we never did that. <sighs> Killing my illustration here. Anyway, we play this game where, you, you know, everybody spreads out in the... In the swimming pool, and then somebody is it, and they go down the water and cover their eyes, and you throw this volleyball around, and then they come up and they try to guess who's got the volleyball. Right? Somebody's got it, they're holding it down, they're sitting on it, something. That's suppressing it to push it down. You can't suppress that, push that down without being in contact with it. 
You can't suppress the truth of God without being in contact with it. These people have a relationship. They know God. They just resent that. They have a relationship. The relationship that they have is they're condemned and under his wrath. They don't know him in a saving way, but they do know him. And they know enough, the Bible says, for them to be condemned without excuse. Verse 21. For although they knew God. You're telling me your pal doesn't know God. But Romans says he does. Who's lying? Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Welcome to our culture. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Do you know what we designate humans as today? Used to say humans are the, the scientific terms, right? The, the binomial nomenclature for humans was homo sapiens. Today it's homo sapiens sapiens. You know what homo sapiens means? You know what we've chosen to, to give ourselves as a moniker in all of science? It means the wise man. You know what homo sapiens sapiens means? The wise, wise man. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, moros. They became morons. The things that are spoken as true, that sometimes we just sit and let pass in these universities, or in these schools, or on these TV shows, are moronic. And somehow we'll sit and try to give them an air of, you know, possibility. No, they're moronic. They're worthy of ridicule. That's what they are. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They'll worship anything else so they don't have to worship God. We'll worship guys that can dunk a basketball from the free throw line. That's incredible. Unbelievable, man, that guy can do that. It's unreal. A God that made planets out of nothing. A dude that dunks a basketball from 15 feet shouldn't like, you know, I mean, good job. But, I mean, that's nothing compared to the immortal God, right? We worship man. Birds, animals, creeping things. We worship anything that we don't, so we don't have to worship God. That's what our culture worships. They do know God, but they resent Him. They don't want to honor Him. And because of that, their foolish hearts are darkened. Look at the next verse. Look at God's response to that. Therefore, because of that, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. That's what that lifestyle is. It's dishonoring of the body. I can remember years ago reading the testimony of a young woman who had left the Christian faith. The cool new term is deconstructing. Right? I guess, you know, the cool old terms like apostasy, that's like too harsh. Deconstructing. She deconstructed. Anyway, the older biblical term is apostasy. Okay? She, she apostatized from the faith. A young lady that was the daughter of a well-known Christian apologist. She talked about how after she went to college, she ran away from home, didn't like all those rules. 
Went to college, found a boyfriend, started living with him, started having sex with him. But, man, every time she did, she just felt such conviction. She could hardly sleep afterward. She didn't like that, the way that conviction felt. It became such a struggle for her that eventually she just decided she didn't need to believe in God. God wasn't real anyway. In her own words, when she finally made that decision, quote, she felt such a release. She was finally free. That should have frightened her soul to the very core. That was Romans 1 in action. You want your sin so much? Have it. God was giving her up to her own sinful desires. That should frighten you to the core. If you've ever experienced it, it should frighten your soul. Three different times in this passage we're told exactly that. God gave them up or gave them over. And why? Why does he give them over? 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for the lie. You want that lie so much? You desire that lie so much? Here, you just go ahead and have it. And you watch what happens. You know what God does when he gives up a people, a society, a nation? Just lets them run. Okay, have it. You're going to find something out. You're going to find out that God made this world and he made it in a way that it will only function right if he's at the middle of it. And when you decide, I don't want him, you cannot function correctly. You will abuse, the word abuse means to use incorrectly, abuse. You will abuse everything. You'll abuse your marital partner. You'll abuse sex. You'll abuse children. You'll abuse the old. You'll abuse the weak. You'll abuse everything in that culture because you refuse to keep God at the middle. You cannot keep Christian moralities in a culture without keeping Christ in that culture. And that, if nothing else, we have learned by looking at the culture around us. He gave them over because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. It does not say they never knew it. They exchanged it. They knew him and they gave it up anyway. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men. They are shameless acts. And receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. They exchanged the truth about God for the lie and he gave them up to dishonorable passions. Notice that homosexual relationships are explicitly listed as dishonorable. What does the scripture have to say about it? It's evil and dishonorable. It's a holy judgment for hardening your heart against God. That's what it says about it. It is unnatural and shameful. When a nation or a people hardens their heart against God, his judgment is to give them over to the sin that they love, the sin that they yearn for, the sin that they crave, and then make them eat the fruit of their unrighteous choices. And we're living in the middle of a culture doing exactly that. And I'm begging you, don't eat that fruit. It's poison. It will destroy anyone that consumes it. Don't consume it. If you're God's and God's people, you won't. 
It would also seem this passage is hinting that STDs are the due and just penalty for this wicked sexual immorality. It's hard for anybody to say otherwise. Except we don't like the idea of judgment anymore. Well, God wouldn't judge people. When did he stop? Well, that was in the Old Testament. Oh, he's a new God? He's a different kind of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament? <laughs> That's a very interesting heresy you've packaged there. Marcion. Right? No, God still judges unrighteousness. He always will. He's judging our culture right now. Don't be lost in it. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. This is verse 28. Because they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Notice it's what shouldn't be done, not what should be celebrated. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty. Insolent and haughty, there's no doubt about it. Boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. It's interesting to me that this list of debased and wicked actions, disobedience to parents, bears mentioning right after the haters of God and the inventors of evil. If you walk the halls of the school, whatever school, come to my school, go to any school, you think disobedience to parents is no big deal. That's just part and parcel of being a teenager, right? Dishonoring your parents, being disobedient, being deceptive, slandering them. That's just part of being a kid. No, it's part of being debased. It's part of living a wicked lifestyle that God says is dishonorable. Students, please listen to me. If you treat your parents the same way the vast majority of those kids at your school treat their parents, you will be living a debased and wicked lifestyle. You'll be unrighteous. You'll be malicious. You'll be deceptive. You'll be slanderers. You'll be debased. But wait, there's more. The passage goes on to say this. They're foolish. It's not my word. It's God's word. They're faithless. They're heartless and they're ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, they know this. I don't have to tell you this. You know this. They know God's righteous decree. What is that decree? That those who practice these things deserve to die. And yet not only do they do them, but they give hearty approval to others who practice those same things. They know God's righteous decree. And what is it? The death penalty. The people that practice this kind of wickedness deserve to be put to death. They know that. And so do you. And nobody wants to talk about it because you're too judgmental and unloving if you say that. Is the death penalty righteous? At least here it is. A few years back, a former student of mine was attending OBU, that's Oklahoma Baptist University, supposedly this, you know, conservative Baptist university in the middle of America here in Shawnee, Oklahoma, right? So he called me one day to tell me what had happened in one of his classes. He said his professor had said in class, the death penalty is unjust and unrighteous and should never be used. So he interrupts like, whoa, time out. So was it unjust when God commanded it in the Old Testament? You know what the professor said? Yeah, maybe. 
So he's teaching at OBU. That's how well some of the men teaching in our Christian universities and seminaries understand God's word. Or how much they fear God. Or I should say, don't fear God. So I sent a message, by the way, to that professor saying, hey, let's, uh, let's debate this. He didn't want to do that. No idea why. Imagine that. Look at the last line, verse 32. Not only do these debased, wicked, ruthless people do these wicked things, but they also clap and cheer for the others that do them. That's the culture we live in, folks. That's it in a nutshell. We live in a culture that actively attempts to suppress God's truth. We live in a culture that lives out a debased wickedness that is a judgment from God and that actively celebrates that wickedness, that rebellion, that immorality, that moronic behavior. They celebrate their wicked debauchery. In fact, our society is so debased and lost. If you, they'll get angry if you don't celebrate it too. What do you mean you don't celebrate that? Don't celebrate your moronic. This is wickedness. How dare you? You're so judgmental. As they condescendingly judge you. You're so judgmental. You Christians. Okay. <laughs> Pot calling the kettle black. That's how blind, debased, and lost our culture is. And I'm preaching it hard this morning because I want it to be a wake-up call to us. Don't be desensitized by that. We're tempted to call all kinds and all manners of sin. That's just an alternative lifestyle. No, it's not an alternative lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of rebellion against God. That's the lifestyle. And if the church, who is the salt and light of the culture, will not say it, who will? If the salt loses its saltiness, what's it good for? Turn with me to 1 John. I'll close up with this piece here. First John 2, 15 through 17. First John 2, here's what it says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. We live in the midst of a culture that's been given over to sin. And the temptation that is going to be pressed on you from every corner is just keep your mouth shut about the gospel. Which is to say, be ashamed of the gospel. Because it will be ridiculed. I very well know. Okay, When I was a college student... At good old East Central. Uh, three different times I had professors tell me, if you don't believe in Darwinism, I'm going to make sure you don't graduate. I'm going to make sure you don't get a degree. That's scary. You're just this little, you know, undergrad. These are the people that have all the power. I, I thought for sure. I was like, man, I'm not, I'm not getting out of here with a degree. I'm not getting out of East Central. Three different times. But you know what? My thinking was, well, if I'm not getting out of here without a degree, I mean, if I'm going to get kicked out, might as well go down swinging, right? Fine. I'm just going to tell you about Jesus then. 
And God gave me incredible opportunities to do that. Because I was just, you know, dumb enough to just try it, right? I literally got my astronomy professor, who, by the way, was a deacon at a large Baptist church, and who was one of the people who was telling me this, got so tired of me asking questions in astronomy class, he finally told me, listen, if you'll just be quiet for the rest of the semester, I'll give you the day before finals and let you address the whole class. Deal. That's exactly what I did. I got to address the entire class. Tell them how I think this is nonsense, and here's why. Now, there was some of my... Um, I don't know what you want, student cohorts in the classes that were very unimpressed with me. But I still got to speak the gospel in my class in college. How many people get to do that? We had a a girl that died. She was actually killed by her boyfriend. She was in our physics class. We had a big physics class. And she was very close to the physics professor. The physics professor came in and said that. And that whole class just went silent. She said, you know, this girl... This girl was found dead this weekend. She won't be here today. And she just kind of started, you know, like tearing up, and everybody was silent. And I realized, like, this is my chance. Now, I'm going to get mocked for it later, but this is my chance. So I took it. I stood up in front of the class and presented the gospel. I knew that girl was a Christian. I told them that. Do you know what happened because of that? Now, I got mocked. But then they had a ceremony on campus where they planted a tree for this girl. And you know what? That professor came and found me. She goes, hey, listen, would you be willing to say that again to a huge bunch of people at East Central? Or would you be too scared? Like, I've already said it. Bring it on. No, I got really cool opportunities to present the gospel. Now, I'm going to be marked as a fool, and you will too. But if you'll decide you will not be ashamed of the gospel, God will open incredible doors for you to be able to share the gospel with people that otherwise would not hear it. You just have to be willing to be unashamed. Let us be fools for Christ. Let us not be ashamed of the gospel, the only thing that has the power to save. Let's pray. God, let us not be ashamed of your glorious gospel. It is the truth of God. The power to salvation. Remind us that we live in the midst of a culture that you've given over. And yet, even though you've given these people over, there are still ones of them you will save. You will penetrate those dark and lost hearts with your glorious gospel. Even though we live in the midst of a culture under your divine judgment, let us speak out and live out your glorious gospel. Let us be salt and light. In a culture of darkness, sin, and death. Let us see your light shine even in the darkness. We thank you for it, Lord. We thank you for this glorious gospel that you've endued with power. The power of salvation. We ask that we would be more bold to speak it. We thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.